listening to sermons from South Point Locust Grove, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. We say it different ways in different places. I remember growing up, a great influence in my life was my Uncle John, and I used to hear Uncle John greet people. He would say, how you doing? How you doing? My dad grew up in Garland, North Carolina, and the the Garland euphemism, as far as I know, was, what you say? So that's what my dad would say when he would meet somebody. What you say? When we were in Uganda, the the Kermajong people would say, uh, Ebalai. Is there any problem? And their answer was always the same. Mamache. There is not a problem. Do you have a particular greeting from maybe a place that you came from that would be the simple question, how are you doing? Anybody? What's up? There you go. What's up? How's your mom and them? What? How's your mom and them? How's your what? How's your mom and them? How's your mom and them? Wow. Okay. That's got to be from up north somewhere because it doesn't make any sense at all, okay? <laughs> all right. Anybody else? I heard some other things. Yes, ma'am. What's the word? Have you heard, right? How you doing? How you doing? But if I were to really ask you today, how are you doing, what would you say? If you were to really tell me how you were doing, what would you say? Right? And if you were to answer, how are you doing, rather than it just being some shallow thing in passing, an in, uh, just a, a, an informal greeting that we all do, if you were to say, I'm doing good or I'm not doing so good, and all of us come in today just in different conditions, we've all checked in to see what condition our condition is in. That's a song for those of us that were born back in the 50s. Everybody's got stuff stirring around inside of them. Everybody's got some assessment of what's going on inside of them. The question I would then ask is not only how are you doing, but what criteria are you using to determine whether or not you are doing okay or not doing okay? What criteria are you using to say, it's a really terrible day or it's a really amazing day. So how are you doing and what criteria are you using? Could be your circumstances. If your circumstances are good, your day is good. If your circumstances are bad, your day is bad. It could be your performance. Uh, maybe you haven't read your Bible today. Maybe you haven't read it this week, so it's not a good day. Or maybe you've read it every day, so it's a great week. Maybe it's your behavior. Maybe it's some intuitive feeling that you're experiencing, some emotion. Maybe you're angry and you're not doing good today. Maybe you're joyful and it's a good day. We have all sorts of criteria. Maybe there are some relationships that are messed up. Maybe there is an offense. Maybe there is some tension. All of these things play into how we truly answer the question, how are you doing? So here's what I want you to think about. I want you to think about how are you doing? And I want you to think about, secondly, what criteria are you using to determine the answer to that question. In other words, what needs to be in place for you to be doing good or what needs to be in place for you not to be doing so good? How are you doing? What is the criteria? Daniel chapter 4, week 8, 
in our study of the book of Daniel. I'm going to begin reading in verse number four. We've seen these guys change their diet and look better than all of the other captives. We've seen Nebuchadnezzar have a dream of this great statue with the different metals from head to toe representing these periods of human history. We saw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego go into the fiery furnace and a fourth man to be in there last week. And now we're coming to another dream of this great king, Nebuchadnezzar. And we're going to look at the first half of it, and then we're going to see it actually come to fruition in the second half. So we're going to see the uh, interpretation of the dream, the re recollection of the dream, but then next week we're going to see the fulfillment of the dream. So Daniel chapter 4. Verse 4 is, is critical because in verse 4, Nebuchadnezzar is answering this question, how you doing? In other words, Nebuchadnezzar is doing a self-assessment. He's doing a self-assessment. Look at it, if you will. I, Nebuchadnezzar, he's the one doing the talking, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. That's self-assessment. The second thing we're going to see, beginning in verse 5, is this shocking dream. I saw a dream that made me afraid as I lay in bed, the fancies and visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, finally, as a last resort, by the way, he's known Daniel for some time, We've got a book that spans 70 years that covers 12 chapters that has nine episodes. A lot more happened in those 70 years than the nine episodes that we see in the book. So there is this passage of time. And so we're probably in the, the middle. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar is probably middle-aged by this point and has accomplished much. Verse 8, at last Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belshazzar after the name of my God and whom is the spirit of the holy gods. Something's different about Daniel. And I told him the dream saying, oh, Belshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you. Tell me the visions of my dream that I saw in their interpretations. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong and its top touched to heaven. And it was visible to the end of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant. And in it was food for all. The beast of the field found shade under it and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches and all flesh was fed from it i saw in the visions of my head as i lay in bed and behold a watcher a holy one came down from heaven he proclaimed aloud and said thus chop down the tree and lop off its branches strip off its leaves scatter its fruit 
Let the beast flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beast of the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast mind be given to him and let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones to the end. This is the purpose of it. That the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belshazzar, tell me the interpretation because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Verse 19. Then Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, was dismayed for a while. And his thoughts alarmed him. <laughs> this shook Daniel up. Um, I'm glad that we have this in here. Some people would say that the book of Daniel is just uh, stories, that it's not true. And, and, and if Daniel was the hero of every story and never showed a human side, um, that would only play into that. But we see his humanness here in that when he saw this dream, it shook him up. It shocked him. It gave him great pause because it was so unique and dramatic. The king answered and said, Belshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Obviously, the king saw it on his face. He saw it on his countenance. He saw it on his micro expressions. We can read the expressions of other people's faces and they're common to humanity. Belshazzar answered and said, My Lord, may the dream be for those who, who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. D don't make me share this with you. I don't even want to share this with you. Let, let this be something that your enemies believe or share with you. The tree you saw which grew and became strong so that its top reached heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and in which was food for all under the beast of the field found shade in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown to the reaches and reaches to heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven and let his portion be with the beast of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree from the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the King, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox. You shall be wet with the dew of heaven. Seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to who he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. So he's going to come to this conclusion after seven periods, seven seasons. It, some would say it's seven years. He's going to come to the conclusion that heaven rules and not him. Therefore, O king, 
Let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. What do we see? We see, first of all, a self-assessment. A self-assessment. Let me give you um, three parts to this self-assessment. Number one, the assessment begins with the conversation. And what we know from the text is that uh, here Nebuchadnezzar is, probably in the Hanging Gardens house. Nebuchadnezzar had three houses. There was the house that his father left him that had to be restored. There was the house that he built, which included the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, which was this massive palace. And then there was a third um, dwelling place for him, which was a summer home. The, the, the speculation is that he is in this house, the seventh wonder of the ancient, or one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, which was these Hanging Gardens of Babylon. And it was absolutely, Absolutely surreal. It was amazing. And while he's sitting here in this palace, after having accomplished much, he begins to have a conversation with himself about himself. And as he was having a conversation with himself about, about himself, he liked what he was saying and he liked what he was hearing. That's the danger of having a conversation with yourself about yourself is that you're going to end up liking what you're saying about yourself and you're going to end up liking what you're hearing about yourself. Can I just be honest with you? A conversation that you're having with yourself about yourself is a dangerous conversation, number one, and you're usually giving yourself more credit than you deserve. I don't know about you, but I played imaginary baseball. I used to go up to my grandfather's, and they evidently at some point in time had created some concrete somewhere, and there were some leftover chips of concrete that were flat. And I would take those flat pieces of concrete that were just, just small enough to put between your fingers, and I'd find a tree out in the distance. And you could take those pieces of concrete, and you could make those things twist and turn. And, man, I could throw curveballs and hit that tree every time. And I stroke. I mean, all, all it took me was 27 batters, and I struck every one of them out. Every time I got up to bat and I would take one of those pieces of rocks and I'd take a stick and I would hit it, guess what? It was a home run. Every time. Cleanup hitter right here. Give me a basketball by myself on the court even to this day and I'm the guy that makes the winning shot. I've never missed one, right? Having a conversation with myself about myself. If I imagine some trouble's coming and I need to get into a fight and go into Krav Maga mode or something like that, I, I, I'm going to whoop everybody. I'm just going to whoop everybody. All in our mind. Because when we're having conversations with ourselves about ourselves, we're always the winners. We're always right. We're always justified. So here Nebuchadnezzar is having this conversation with himself about himself. The worst person to trust for an accurate self-assessment is yourself. Yet we do it all the time and never bring anyone else into the conversation or never bring ourselves to trust anyone else to speak into our lives. Don't do that. Self-assessment begins with a conversation. Secondly, self-assessment continues with criteria. What is the criteria of his self-assessment? This is important. There are two things that he uses as criteria for self-assessment. Number one, I'm doing good because it's easy, right? I'm taking my ease. 
I'm doing good because everything's easy. We want everything easy. I'm doing good because I'm prosperous. That's the criteria of his self-assessment. It is easy. Uh, What does the word um, easy mean? The word easy means stress-free. Oh, you don't need any stress in your life, right? You got to stop that. What is the source of your stress? You got to get rid of your stress. You can't have any stress. I'm going to tell you, if, if that is the objective of your life, go find an island and, and, and get you some mind-altering substances and sit in the middle of the island by yourself and take those mind-altering substances because there's no place on this earth that has connection to people or clarity of mind that exists without stress. But by the way, we all want a stress-free life. That's what ease means. Ease means stress free. You're stressing me out. Stress is destroying your organs. Stress causes Alzheimer's. Stress causes heart problems. Stress causes cancer. Stress causes arthritis. Stress causes everything. I want it easy. I want ease. The word ease means secure. It means not worried. It means not threatened. It means not fearful. It means no pressure. How you doing? How you doing? Oh, I got stress. I'm not doing too good. I have no stress. Everything's good. Mission accomplished. Second is prosperity. Prosperity or success. So, so the criteria that he uses to do a self-assessment is how stress-free am I and how successful am I? The word prosperous means luxuriant. It means fresh, green, ripe. It means life is good. Life is fresh. He's probably, probably sitting out or laying down on one of those bed swings out there in the hanging gardens of Babylon looking at all of the fresh plants that have been created from all over the world. And this thing is absolutely amazing. And he sees all of the greenery. He says, man, my life is so prosperous and my life is so easy. But he also tells us in the text that, that not only is there the conversation and not only is there the criteria, but they're also the compartments. He said, in my house and in my palace. What is he saying? Everything is easy and everything is prosperous in my life, personally in my house and professionally in my palace. Everything in my world is just like I want it. He has done a self-assessment. Now, let me be honest with you. This is a, an accurate and a limited self-assessment. Let's face it, Nebuchadnezzar was highly intelligent. He was a writer. He was an engineer. He was an architect. He was a visionary. He, he was a military genius. He was king of the number one superpower of the world. He was in cr- control of the world. He was a blessing to the world. He was considered to be a God worthy of worship. And he had an impressive resume by anybody's standards. This guy was impressive. And if I had the criteria that he had, I would probably feel like I was okay. But inside, Nebuchadnezzar was saying, I've done it right. If you just do it like I do it, then you could get the same results. I am enjoying what I worked for. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar is saying, guess what, guys? I worked hard. I did it right. And I deserve it. I deserve it. And I think if we're honest, we're a lot like Nebuchadnezzar. 
what thrills us and chills us and kills us, what we live for, what we long for, what we love, and what we celebrate are all the things that he lived for and longed for and loved and celebrated. Ease and prosperity. Ease and prosperity. I just want everything to go my way. And so I ask you, how are you doing? And what is it about you that says, I'm doing okay or I'm not doing okay? Because, listen to me, while Nebuchadnezzar had ease and prosperity, while he was filled with power and pride, and he thought everything was okay, as we go through this text, there is a different criteria that determines whether or not we're okay. There is a different criteria that is given to us. He has to go through the seven periods of being literally uh, uh, an, 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 a cow, boanthropy, right? It, it's, it's, it's a literal condition where somebody stops thinking that they're a human being and starts thinking that they're a cow, and they go out and start eating grass like a cow. That's exactly what he did. And he goes through these seven periods and finally comes to his mind, and the conclusion that he draws is know that he's not okay and know that it's not about ease and know that it's not about prosperity. It's about knowing that God is sovereign over everything, including my life. That's the criteria. The criteria is not ease. The criteria is not prosperity. The criteria is an awareness of who God is. And that's what makes us okay. It's not this criteria that he was using. So we see this self-assessment. And again, I tell you that we are more like Nebuchadnezzar than we begin to realize, no matter how spiritual we think we are. Nebuchadnezzar, we, we're going to find out as we get to the end of the text, struggle with pride. All of this is driven by pride. He looked at what he had, and he looked at himself, and he said, I'm amazing, and my life is amazing. And I don't know about you, but I struggle with pride. Right? I just want things to go my way. Somebody got in front of me on the way over here this morning, and I thought, why can't everybody just get out of my way and let me go where I want to go? Right? If you're going to get in front of me, at least drive, at least drive the speed limit. Why do there have to be so many people in line at Zaxby's at the drive-thru when, I, when I'm hungry? I just wish everybody would get out of the way and that Zaxby's would open up and say, we're taking no other customers but Mark Powell. I would just be, I'd be so happy with that. I, I, I would love that. I would love to go. Has anybody ever been to Bucky's? Yeah, if you haven't been to Bucky's, you're missing one of the seven wonders of the modern world. <laughs> and every time I go to Bucky's, there, there, it looks like a fire ant hill that somebody stepped on. I mean, just, just people everywhere in the store, at the gas pumps. You can't find anywhere to get. And I just wish everybody would get out of my way and let me, Mark the Powell, go to Bucky's and have his way. I just wish the world worked like that. I wish my kids would do everything I ever told them to do. I wish they would listen to me on the first command, on the first warning, right? I wish my wife recognized how amazing that I am, <laughs> right? I wish she could read my mind. I wish I could read her mind, <laughs> amen? <laughs> 43 years and I ain't figured it out yet. By the time I think I got it figured out, she changes her mind. 
You see, I just want things to go my way. I just want things to be easy. I want to take, I took a chair out of the box back here this week, and, and it took me about 30 minutes to figure out which way the handles were, were supposed to go. And the reason was not my inadequacy, but it was the inadequacy of the people who prepared the instructions. And I just want to take it out of the box and snap my hands because I know how to use a screwdriver and a wrench and a hammer. I'm good with it. And, and, and so I just want it easy. I want it easy. I want it easy because I deserve it. I want to be prosperous because I deserve it. And I think I deserve it because I'm proud. The second thing we see is this shocking dream. I've already read it. There is this recollection of the dream. The, the dream in, in, in interrupted Nebuchadnezzar's confident self-assessment. And according to his words, this dream made him feel afraid. The word afraid means small and insignificant and out of control. We don't like to feel out of control. Literally, he's saying that this dream caused me to slink away. This dream caused me to want to disappear. And he was utterly terrified. But notice the first thing that he did. Anybody that has a conversation with themselves, whenever they have a problem, they're going to call somebody to get advice from that's going to tell them what they want to hear. And that's what we do. We want somebody to tell us good news. Tell me what I want to hear. Tell me that I'm amazing. Tell me that I did everything right. Tell me that I deserve ease and prosperity. Tell me what I want to hear. Because you know what my pride in me does when somebody tells me what I don't want to hear? It bows up. I don't like reproof. I don't like correction. So what's the first thing Nebuchadnezzar does? He calls this crew of guys in that are scared that if, if, if they cross him or say one cross word or one eyelash is out of place, he's going to kill them. So they're going to tell him what he wants to hear. So he called up the guys who would do their best to tell him what he wanted to hear. The good news crew showed up. Why didn't Nebuchadnezzar call Daniel? Daniel was not a yes man. Daniel was always bringing bad news. Daniel's always hearing from God. And when you hear from a God, it's really hard to talk to a guy who thinks he's God. That's where our problem comes in. Just a word about Daniel. He called Daniel. We see some words here in the text that speak to Daniel. Listen, the contrast in the text is between this humble man, Daniel, and this arrogant man, Nebuchadnezzar. Right? That's a contrast. What do we see in Daniel? Daniel was unique. He had within him the spirit, the ruach, the, the breath, the life, the word of the holy God. He didn't speak like the other leaders spoke. He was the most truthful man on earth. He was the wisest man on earth. He was the most humble man on earth. And he was the most compassionate man on earth. Please don't miss that. Many times when we think we know the truth, we become very arrogant about knowing the truth. When if we know the truth, we should be the most humble and compassionate people on the face of the planet because God in his grace gave us the truth. Right? It's, it's a gift of grace. 
Daniel is in exile. Daniel was taken captive. Daniel is being held prisoner by this man, Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar's asking him for help. I don't know about you, but I would have probably said, I ain't helping you, dude. You just go figure it out yourself. I'd be manipulating. I'd be bargaining. What are you going to give me if I give you something? Daniel wasn't that way. Daniel was so unique, this man in exile, this man in captivity. Daniel is the prototype of how to live in exile. Daniel's the prototype of how to live in a world that you don't belong to. Daniel is the prototype of how we should be navigating life in the world in which we live. He was respectful. He was fearful. He was honest. He was sacrificial. He was compassionate because there was just a different spirit in him. By the way, when there is a different spirit in you, there will be a different energy coming out of you. There will be a different fruit. Check out Galatians 5. There will just be a different... When, when you walk in... By the way, every one of us is a compilation of everything that's ever happened to us in our life. You may not like that. Everything that's happened to us has impacted us in some way. The Spirit of God comes in and lives and dwells in us. Every one of us emanates an energy that is out of our life experiences and how we have responded to them. And every one of us emanates an energy based on the Spirit that is within us. Some people are life-giving. Some people will just suck the life out of you. Some people are magnetic and attractive, and you're drawn to them because there's a spirit in them. And some people are like, oh, man, come near me. You're going to get a left hook and a right cross. Right? There's this energy. There was this, there was this spirit in him that manifested itself in so many different ways. Daniel wasn't angry at the world. Daniel wasn't angry at everybody around him. Daniel wasn't angry at his circumstances. Daniel was in exile, and he had a longing to see those around him understand the grace and mercy and redemption and love and saving power of God. And we see that gushing out of all of his conversations. Daniel was not unlike Jesus who looked out over Jerusalem at the people that were going to soon crucify him. And his face was filled with tears. And he said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I, I've longed that you would respond to me. I've longed that you would let me take you under my wings. Can I tell you something? You and I should walk out these doors into that world. And there may be people that are pagan. There may be people that are different. There may, may be people that look different, that sound different. Their language is completely different. Their, their words are harsh and profane. And that is because the condition of their heart is lost apart from Jesus Christ. And you and I have the opportunity to walk out among them with good news. And the longing of our heart should not be to say, yeah or get away from me or leave me alone. The longing of our heart should be, I want these people to know the God that I know. I want them to know the love that I know. I want them to know the sweet fellowship that I know. I want them to know and be a part of the kingdom that I'm a part of. That was this man, Daniel. He interprets the dream. Here's the interpretation. The tree is you and your kingdom. A watcher is in the interpretation, a watcher is in the dream. A watcher is someone who is observing. A watcher is a guardian. A watcher is an angel. And angels are all over the Bible. You are being watched. Records are being kept. An account is looming. Judgment is coming. 
we understand from the text that the watcher is of divine origin. The watcher has a divine assignment assigned to Nebuchadnezzar. The, the watcher has, is doing a divine assessment. The watcher is informing Nebuchadnezzar of divine judgment. And the watcher is also through Daniel pleading with Nebuchadnezzar to Turn to divine mercy. Break off from your iniquity. Turn from your sin. Repent of your sin. There is a decree from God to chop down the tree, the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar, the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. And for seven seasons, seven increments of time, you are going to lose your mind and become like an animal. Seven, perhaps, years of a 43-year reign. This guy was out of pocket. But the, a stump is there to say that not only, does, has God, not only has the watcher seen you, not only is God judging you, but you are going to, through a process of time, be brought to an awareness of who God is and what his objectives are. And your kingdom is going to be restored once you repent and move from self-assessment to self Awareness, your kingdom will be restored. And so I, I want us to move. We, we've looked at self-assessment. That's what Nebuchadnezzar did. We see this shocking dream. The third thing I want you to see this morning is self-awareness. You see, when somebody says, how you doing? The answer that we give is based on certain criteria. Our criteria could be based on self-assessment. Our criteria could be based on Self-awareness. Self-awareness is when we come to the place that we recognize God for who he is. It is not until you see God for who he is that you can even begin to understand who you are. This is exactly what happened in the text. This is exactly what happened in Nebuchadnezzar. So we move from self-assessment, which is where most of us are, and what we like or don't like is based on ease and prosperity, but now we're shifting our focus because we are brought to an understanding, perhaps through repentance, that there is a lot more to it than ease and prosperity. In fact, and this, this, this should create some tension within you. In fact, every one of us was created for more than ease and prosperity. Every one of us was created for something better than ease and prosperity. And that something better is a relationship with God through the finished work of his son, Jesus Christ. And so we come to this place of self-awareness. I was thinking through this, and, and, I, and, I, and I thought about how we, we come to that place. And, and this is a, a summary statement before I look at self-awareness. As long as you live in a world where the only exposure that you welcome is your own self-assessment or the assessment of those who will tell you what you want to hear, unless you are in a confessional community where your interior world where your life story, where your heart are exposed to brothers and sisters in Christ and God's word, you will always be stuck in a deceptive self-assessment and never experience liberating self-awareness. What a beautiful thing to have a Daniel that will tell you the truth. When somebody says, how you doing? I'm not doing too good. Why? 
stock market's down. 20%. 20%. Real money. Gone. <laughs> gone. How you doing? Not doing too good. Is that really the only thing that matters to you? Are you kidding me, brother? Are you kidding me, sister? Is that the thing that determines the mechanisms of your interior world? Don't you know that you were created for more? Don't you know that when you die, your kids are going to get what you have and they're going to waste it away in about three weeks? They're, they're going to, the first thing they're going to do is they're going to get a dumpster and back it up to the, to the front door of your house and throw about seven-eighths of your stuff in it. And then the other one-eighth that they're left with, they're going to sell it. And so you're worried about the stock market, right? Or, or, or just some, the, you wash the machines, but it's a bad day, man. I'm telling you, I had to, had to wash the dishes by hand. Is that, is that where you're living can, 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 we, can we get around brothers and sisters in Christ and say, man, this is, this is who I am. This is where I'm struggling. How you doing? This is how I'm doing. Really? Is that where you're living? Because, because God has something better for you. There's a different place he wants you to live. We're going to see it here in the text in just a minute. We need to go from self-assessment to self-awareness. Look, look, at, look at chapter 4 and verse 26. I want, you to, I want you to see something. This is, this is self-awareness. As it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. That's self-awareness. Self-assessment is ease and prosperity. Self-assessment is... An accurate assessment of yourself, that person that you see in the mirror is this. Heaven rules. God is in charge. He says it several different ways. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off from your sin and your iniquities by practicing righteousness and, and showing mercy to the oppressed. Look at verse 28. All this came upon Nebuchadnezzar. Let me, let me fast forward you here to look at a couple of verses that we'll look at next week. Go to verse number 32, if you will. Go to verse 32. And you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. God is sovereign over the kingdoms of this world, and God is sovereign over the circumstances of your life and my life. Go to verse number 35. He says, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can say his hand or say to him, what have you done? Look at verse 36. At the same time, my reason returned to me, for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all of his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. So he moves from self-assessment to self Awareness. Two categories in self-assessment and self-awareness. There is the category of pride and the category of humility. All of your life boils down to that. What's going on inside of you and how you are navigating the world and how you are navigating relationships boil down to pride and humility. 
three statements about self-awareness. The key to self-awareness is God-awareness. The key to self-awareness is not personal situational awareness. The key to self-awareness is not financial awareness. The key to self-awareness is not uh, an assessment of my, my health. The key to self-awareness is God-awareness. The key to God-awareness is humility. As long as I am filled up and struggling with pride, I'm going to be constantly trying to put myself in the place of God and be in control of my life instead of letting him be in control of my life. Thirdly, the, fourthly, thirdly, the barrier to self-awareness is pride, the original self-awareness blocker. The words pride and humility are used here at the end of chapter four. The word pride means to lift up. It means to be above. It means to be superior to. It means to be better than. I'm, I'm, I'm better than that. I'm better than you. Anything that I do to lift me up is pride. Pride was the downfall of Satan. Pride was the downfall of Adam and Eve. Pride was the downfall of David. Pride is the downfall of spiritual leaders, even in 1 Timothy 3 in the New Testament. We see this, this thing called pride, which is the snare of the devil. Let me quickly ex explain or try to give you some picture of what pride is. Apart from God, I am sick with pride. But pride doesn't come in with flashing neon lights. Pride is elusive. Pride is attractive. Pride is forever morphing into more palatable forms once, once it is discovered. Pride is subtle. It is powerful. It is divisive. It is deceptive. It is destructive. And it's probably one of the least detectable things that goes on inside of me and you when we are doing a self-assessment. Of all the things that we need to repent of, pride ought to be at the top of the list. And the most odious form of pride is religious pride. The worst form of pride is religious pride. By the way, it was religious pride that killed the Lord Jesus Christ. So how does pride show up in your life? I believe it shows up in two areas. First of all, I believe it shows up internally. And secondly, it shows up relationally. It shows up internally, and it shows up relationally. You say, where do you get that from? I get it from what he's asked to repent of. You need to repent of your sin against God, and you need to repent of your iniquities of oppressing other people. In other words, pride is showing up in, in his failure to understand who he is before God, his failure to understand who God is. Pride is showing up in how he is oppressing and using other people to achieve his own personal objectives, which is a common thing in the human condition. How does pride show up? Pride usually speaks to me about me. Pride usually shows up in self-justification. You had an argument with your spouse lately? The first thing you did was justify yourself. Right? Self-justification. Um, hey, be aware. Self-justification is not an objective meter that says, guess what? I'm right. Self-justification is a, an objective meter that says you're filled with pride. Whenever you have a conversation, whenever you have a debate, whenever, you, whenever, whenever you're duking it out with somebody, whenever something's going on inside of your mind and the convicting power of the Holy Spirit or shame floods your soul, understand that when self-justification rises up and says, Oh yeah, I'm right. Let me tell you why I'm right. One, two, three, four, that's why I'm right. Not only one, two, three, four, that's why I'm right, but I checked it with my trusted advisors, and they said I was right too. 
Self-justification. Self-justification. Pride shows up in self-justification. Pride shows up exalting me and convincing me that I'm right, convincing me that I'm righteous, convincing me that I'm performing well. Pride generally speaks to us in a relational context and impacts how we relate to people and to God. In other words, in a relational context, I'm never wrong. I'm always right. And by the way, that ensures that I never have to be vulnerable and humble and apologetic. I never have to show weakness. Strong people are always right. Weak people are the ones that are running around repenting and apologizing. What we do in those contexts when we're always right is we manipulate data in the presupposition of superior reasoning that always leaves me right and leaves me in self-righteousness and arrogance. So there's that side of pride. There's that side of pride that's self-justifying, that's self-affirming, that always leaves me right, that, that never puts me in a posture of having to look, look weak or apologize or say I'm sorry or say I was wrong. Hey, if, if, it's been, if it's been a few hours since you said you were wrong, right? For some, it's been a few days. For some, it's been... In fact, if I were to talk to some of your spouses, they would say, I've heard men say about their wives and wives say about their husbands, my spouse has never admitted that they were wrong. And that's not because you're right all the time. That's because you're proud. That's because you're proud. But pride shows up in a different way. It shows up in the form of self-pity. What is self-pity? Self-pity is woe is me, poor me. Why poor me? Because bad things are happening and I deserve better. Right? Bad things are happening to me. I had a flat tire. My car's broke down. My kids aren't behaving. And I, I've just invested in them. I, I, I've, I've, I've eaten spinach my whole life. And I got a cold. Poor me. I've just, I just deserve better. And that is a form of pride. How could you do this to me, God? Daniel could have easily gone there. I'm a great guy, 70 years in exile. God, how could you do this to me? That's just a thumbnail of pride. What about humility? Let me hasten. Where pride means to lift up and be above Humility means to lay low. Humility means to come under. Humility means to sub submit to. There is a God. Listen, here's humility. There is a God and I am not him. There is a God and I must acknowledge him alone as God and not try to be in competition with him. Listen to this. Acknowledge, this is humility. Acknowledging God is what I was created for. Every single person on the face of this planet, all 8 billion people, every single one of them was created. You were created psychologically. You were created biologically. You were created emotionally. You were created relationally. You were created in every way that you could possibly imagine. Everything within you was created to acknowledge God. And whenever you refuse to acknowledge God and live in your pride and try to take God's place everything within you is then in dissonance acknowledging god is what i was created for acknowledging and personally knowing 
Loving and being in fellowship with this God is the source of supreme peace and joy for every human being. And anything less than acknowledging Him and loving Him and being in fellowship with Him, anything less than I would encourage you this morning to humble yourself beneath the mighty hand of God. 1 Peter 5. It is our humility in receiving finished work of the Son. How is pride manifesting itself in your life? When was the last time you in vulnerability and humility exposed your heart to a brother or sister in Christ and they enabled you to see your pride? That's a brother or sister in Christ. Are ease and prosperity an issue for you? If they are, how will you respond to that awareness? Are you allowing ease and prosperity to cultivate spiritual lethargy in your life. The, the greatest enemy of revival is prosperity. Ease and prosperity result in spiritual lethargy. Thirdly, how do you respond to the pagans around you while you're in exile and awaiting deliverance? You try to keep your distance. You have a yuck attitude. You think they're dirty. Do you have compassion and longing for them to know the kind and gracious God who redeemed you from your sin and paganism? Fourthly, will you repent this morning of your pride? That is what God called Nebuchadnezzar to. That's what Daniel called Nebuchadnezzar to. Will you repent of your pride? Will you repent of your failure to acknowledge the sovereignty of God over nations, over kings, over political processes, over the vote in November, over your life, over your circumstances. Finally, you were created for something better. You were created for something more. You were not created for ease and prosperity. You were created for a relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ. And I would offer to you the advice of Daniel. He said to the king, King, why don't you repent now? Why, why don't you not wait until the trees chop down and you have to spend seven years crawling around on your knees like a cow eating grass? Why don't you repent now? The Bible says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All eight billion people or everyone that has ever been created will bow their knee to Jesus Christ one day. Some will not do it joyfully but they will bow. But some will do it joyfully because they surrendered in humility their life to Him now. And that is my call to you this morning. And that is my call to you, O believer. If you would join me, let us examine our hearts and let us look for pride and let us look for humility and let us repent of our pride and let us approach our Lord in humility and experience life that transcends the circumstances of this world. Every week we come and take bread and juice, and it reminds us. It reminds us through these simple symbols that there is something better and that something is better. Something that is better is found in Christ, in Christ alone. So I invite you to come this morning. If you're a believer, I invite you to come and recognize the fact that you have no hope apart from His death. You have no hope apart from His life. You have no hope apart from His resurrection. And come and celebrate that this morning. Come and repent of your sin this morning. Come, let us eat together as the family.